Shall we anticipate some part of the future glory that's coming by reading a portion from the book of the Revelation, part of chapter 21? Part of chapter 21 of the book of the Revelation. And when we start reading verse 9, as we shall, there will be a throwback to an earlier chapter where one of the seven angels said, I will show you another woman who was also decked in gold and purple, but that was Babylon, the great, the wicked city, representing the culmination of darkness on the earth. Now verse 9 of chapter 21. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. You remember that the words come four times over in the book of the Revelation, in the and if you collect them together, you could never say that he was in the spirit on a Sunday afternoon. No, no, it wouldn't be possible. He was taken in the spirit to see a city that hasn't yet come down from heaven. And in the first chapter, he said, I was in the spirit in the day of the Lord. That's not you here yet. And talk with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And then we go right through the um, the list of the description of the wall and the building, which I'm going to ask you to read at your own leisure as you have it to fill in, and then we get down to verse 22. And I saw no temple therein. I always feel that when we get to that, John is recording a little surprise. As though he was saying, well, the temple of Solomon was wonderful enough, and the temple of Herod was commented upon by other nations of the earth as being a marvellous building. Uh, I've described the walls, I've described the foundations, I've described the very gates, but you wait till I describe the temple, you know. And he said there wasn't one. But don't you see, friends, that's the very glory of the New Jerusalem. Because strictly speaking, wherever there's a temple and a priest and a sacrifice, you are at a distance from your God. There never ought to have been a temple or a priest or a sacrifice because there never ought to have been sin. So when at last the perfect thing has come, then all the bits that come in between have done their work and finished. You realise that, don't you? So, if you're looking forward to when you get to heaven to get into a chapel that's going to beat the chapel of the open book, you won't find it. There won't be a chapel at all. Do you know why? Because you'll be at home. In the Father's home. And in a Father's home, you don't have to sit in pews and sing hymns at certain times. You're at home. Or there'll be no levity. There'll be true worship. But in all the intermediary things, all the 
priests and their offerings and that are all finished. So, uh, I hope you won't be disappointed because if one lady used to come to this meeting she was terribly disappointed when I said I didn't know that she was ever going to see a cherubim. Oh, she was a bit disappointed. She was looking forward to see the cherubim. <laughs> so I said, well, I will make a promise to you but alas, she hasn't been some time now. I said, whenever you come to this meeting between you and me, I won't tell anybody else, I'll say the word cherubim somewhere in my address. Now, that's only playing, isn't it? But you see, we, we entertain thoughts which are not going to be fulfilled. It's something infinitely better. So what does it say here? I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. They take the place of all these representations which have now passed away. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon. What, is it going to be dark? Oh, I should think not. To shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. But you know, if you like, you could go on writing another chapter to your Bible. I don't say call it a Bible. But because of the Lamb is, whatever all these things are to you, you fill the whole thing. And so I leave it there. That there was a partial description, I'll leave the rest of it to you because of our time. But it focuses not upon the glistening stones at long last of the foundation or however ever they could find a pearl big enough to make one gate out of it. We don't know. But you said, never mind about that. The Lamb is the light thereof. And there's no temple there. And so, at long last, priest draws into the background, kings draw into the background, and we're left alone with the Lord and his redeemed people. That's as it should be. This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number 13 of the studies of the prophet Isaiah. I think I mentioned in an earlier study uh, that we must remember that this prophecy was not uttered in one utterance. It took 61 years. It gives you the names of the kings during which Isaiah made this prophecy. And so you could, you could look upon this one book of Isaiah as a bound volume of a lot of small pamphlets. And you will find a recurrence. He, he speaks to Israel about their sins, their departure, their disobedience, and then he brings before them the glory and the wonder of the day when the restoration will take place. Chapter 1 of Isaiah says they've departed from God and they don't even respect him like an ox or an ass. He calls the city the city of Sodom. And the next chapter it speaks about the day when they shall all be there, the millennial kingdom set up. Then back again he is denouncing them. And that's what we find all over and over again. So you cannot take the book as a consecutive unfolding. It's continually going back and forth, back and forth, and adding portions all the time. Now, after we looked at some of the uh, blessings that have been indicated, we are back again on denunciation. And you get these words in chapter 58. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. You see, it started all over again. And then to anticipate where we are reaching, if only they see this and repent, verse 8, 
Then shall thy light break forth as a morning, and thy health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. So you see, there's darkness because of sin. There's light because of righteousness. And then it goes on to emphasize the fact, if you look at chapter 59, verse 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, said the Lord. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. And that is quoted by the Apostle Paul in, in connection with the establishing of a new covenant that God will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So here we have not the old covenant that they couldn't keep, but a new covenant which has been sealed by the blood of Christ. An old covenant written on stone is given place to a new covenant with the terms written upon the fleshy table of their hearts. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Now that's the new covenant which will never be broken. Do we agree? Right. Well now I'm just going to ask some of you who are listening to listen to this. There is a brother in Christ who I regard with great respect, but with whom I severely and strongly differ over one or two things. He believes he is right, I must leave him, who has taught you that there is to be a period of light on this earth long before Christ comes. He has called it the premillennial kingdom. And he takes verse 1 of chapter 60 as an illustration of his teaching. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. But this is to take place according to his teaching all oh, a long time before Christ returns. Now you see, there's no chapter division in Isaiah and he would be the first one to draw his attention that there are no chapter divisions. And so when it says the Redeemer shall come to Zion and when he comes, something is going to happen that you'll never be cut off and destroyed but you'll go on forever and then he immediately says arise, shine for thy light is come. But you say, you can't take that verse to teach something that's going to take place on the earth before he comes, for the very context says it's the consequence of his coming. Now, I'm not here to pillory anybody. I only feel that it's, uh, I might, uh, I should be very wrong if I didn't give just a little word of warning and say, now don't you take it from me, either from me or from him, search the scriptures, and that is your responsibility. Well, now, before we look further into this Isaiah 60, I think it would be a good thing if we got an idea of its general constitution. And that is discovered by searching and finding the structure. Well, instead of you having to do it, I've had to do it, and I exhibit it now before you in this little chart. So will you look and see the way in which the subject moves? First of all, we have verses 1 to 3, which we can quite de denominate by the words, the light, Israel's light. It says, rising, the light shining, and the glory of the Lord. And then there's darkness on the earth and darkness on the peoples. Then it says, the glory of the Lord, and light attracting and rising. You see, there's a perfect pattern. It's one thing to see that the light isn't for your own special individual benefit only. 
It's for others. Others shall come to thy light. And that's true, of course, even in this very day in which we live, in another sense. Well then, we have the next denomination, I've written it down aside, Israel gathered and acknowledged by Gentiles to be priests and kings. That's the character of the kingdom that's yet to come. It's a different kingdom from any kingdom that's been on the earth before, because God made a very definite statement that kingship and priesthood must never be linked together. There's only one king priest in the Bible, and that's the Melchizedek. And he had no successor, but Christ is said to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, a king priest. And when one king attempted to unite in his own person priesthood and kingship, he was stricken with leprosy, and his very name is mentioned by Isaiah. Look at chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that a king priest died of leprosy, I saw a king priest that was the real one. Now you see, a day is coming when the children of Israel will be at last entering into their destiny to be a kingdom of priests. So we'll look at that. How is this to be brought about? I shall bring thy sons from far, and the forces of the Gentiles shall be laid at their disposal. And what are these forces of the Gentiles? Gold and incense? Well, gold and incense are going to be used by the priesthood. You see, just as it was when they came out of the land of Egypt, the children of Israel were going to be asked by God after they crossed the Red Sea and went into the wilderness to build a tabernacle with gorgeous coloured materials and any amount of gold, well, you might have said, well, where's the people going to get all that material when they're right out in the wilderness? Well, God saw to it that all the wages that they'd heard had never been paid them were all piled onto them by the Egyptians that hurried them out. You remember? Our version said they spoiled the Egyptians. Well, the Egyptians had spoiled them and God was putting a balance back again. They took it all out with them. And so, when that day of glory comes, and there is to be this marvellous temple on the earth. There will be one on the earth, you see, a little bit different from the heavenly Jerusalem, where the Lamb is the light thereof, and the Lamb is the temple. Here there will be a visible temple, because the people on earth will be taught by those means. Well, the very Gentiles then are going to contribute their share, and it will pour in then and build this place for the witness of God's truth. And then again it says, your sons coming from afar and the forces of the Gentiles be laid at their disposal. This time it's kings that are mentioned. And there we have Lebanon and the bending at their feet recognizing their royalty. So here we have a kingdom of priests. Of course this upsets some of God's people in this present dispensation because you know there are Christian people who take to themselves that they are kings and priests. Uh, they forget they're reading the epistle of Peter who addressed his letter to the dispersion. You know, it's a very wise thing whenever you pick up a letter that you look on the envelope first. Well, I know sometimes I've uh, made a mistake. I've been looking at the marmalade and just looking at the paper and picked up the envelope and slit it and said, oh dear, that's not for me, you see. Well, people have done that. Yet the books have got, see. The prophet Isaiah wrote for the concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Peter and James, they wrote to the dispersion. The people of Israel were scattered. And Paul wrote to me and to you who are just Gentiles by nature. So we've got an access to the whole book because we're looking at a book that belongs to another people. 
and we get by looking at the books to other people lessons for ourselves. But we can't take it all to ourselves. However meek you and I may be, we're never going to inherit the earth. But we're not going to lose anything by that because we're going to inherit somewhere even better. So rightly divide the word of truth and we get harmony instead of discord. Well then you see, we get the way in which they're all going to be brought. So we come back again to Israel's light. And this time, we've got the emphasis upon the fact that the Lord, it's like in the passage we read just now, those of you who are listening to me, we read a part of Revelation 21, where John is describing the heavenly Jerusalem with all the wonder of its construction, with the jewels for its walls. But when he comes to describe the temple, he has to say there wasn't one. That's the glory of it. Well, what have you got here? The sun and the moon are going out. There'll be no more. The Lord is your everlasting light. And thy God, thy glory. Again it says, the sun and the moon, no more. And the Lord, the everlasting light. And then the next time, instead of saying, thy God, thy glory, thy days of mourning are ended. And then, just one uh, piece, the last verses 21 and 22, that balance the, uh, the beginning. It says, the people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So just under that one heading, I've put the last clause, planted. Now you see, that makes you a bit independent of me and anybody else, if that is true. That is the backbone of this section. And the emphasis is put upon the outstanding passages. Now what we've got to do is just to face them and see what lesson we may learn from them. You'll notice there's a call to arise and a call to awake. Look back, will you, to 51. 51, verse 9. Awake, awake! Put on thy strength, O arm of the Lord. The Lord is being called upon to awake. But then in verse 17, it says, Awake, awake, stand up, Jerusalem! which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. And then we move to chapter 52, 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Is he coming? The Lord awakes, and they awake. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And then uh, we get um, the corresponding thought in the passage before us, not really awake, but arise. Now, I don't want to be fantastic, but I do know this, that the Spirit of God who inspired the Old Testament inspired the New. And in the New Testament, we've got the same sequence. We get, first of all, awake, and then we arise. There are two distinct words translated to rise from the dead. And they're both together in one verse in the Epistle to the Ephesians. Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. See, awake now that sleepest. Uh, just to get two words that sound alike, the Greek word egairo is to arouse, and the Greek word anistibi and anastasis and all the variants is to arise. To arouse and to arise. Now normally that's what happens. You first wake up and then you get up. But if you're frightened out of your life by a bell going and you leap clean out of bed, well that's a bit abnormal. In the ordinary way, that's what's happening. And Christians, as well as some of these people, 
are having the awakening call first. We are awakening, friends. The work has begun. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And then comes the real standing up, as the word anesthesia is. Not merely just awake, but standing right up in the glory that's yet to be. So we've got the same sequence. Awake, awake, then arise. And the next thing is, arise, shine, for thy light is come. Not merely is the light come, but it's come for you to do something with it, isn't it? See, Philippians says the same thing to us. We are as shining lights that shine in a world which is in darkness. Or the Lord spoke in the in the parabolic form in the Gospel according to Matthew. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. A light is supposed to shine. You may have a light that's so bottled and, and tied up and bandaged up in some way that although it's there, nobody sees it. I do remember in Robert Louis Stevenson, he speaks about his boyhood days when he and a few more used to walk about in the dark night with little lanterns under their waistcoats and nobody could see it was a light at all. They were the only ones who knew it. They were walking about in the dark with that little secret. Well, that's a boy's prank, isn't it? But whatever you do, don't be like those boys that had a light put underneath their waistcoat. If you have a light, it's supposed to shine, however feebly, that others may see and be encouraged. So arise, shine, for thy light is come. And what's the origin of this light? Oh, we've got it, haven't we, in the same verse. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Now, in the ordinary run of things, anyone who plans anything for his own glory is a person to be rebuked and to be regarded with a certain amount of dividends. But there's one exception, and that's God. For when he is glorified, it means his people are blessed at the same time. The glory of God is the ultimate goal of creation and redemption. You remember how the Lord said, again quoting Matthew, you think about this, you think about that, you think about that, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added to you. So you're really looking after number one when you forget yourself and think of his purpose. If you turn back for a moment and see the marginal reading in Isaiah 6, where those cherubim, they not only say glory, but they, uh, they speak about it in this way. He says in verse 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, that's the way it's put in the English translation. But the translators were a little bit uncertain because they knew they'd altered the order of the words. They altered them to make them sound a bit better English, I suppose. But this is what actually it comes in the margin. His glory is the fullness of the whole earth. Instead of the fullness of the whole earth being his glory, it's the other way around. When his glory is here, the fullness of the earth responds. So, the more you work for the glory of God and the less you work for anybody else or anything else, the more you're helping everybody. But the more you spend your time and strength on all the other incidents, it never comes. It's, it's like saying, 
We'll get up in the middle of the night and we'll get on with our gardening and we'll have little lights and shine on them. We'll say, well, why don't you get up in the morning and do it with the sunshine there? There's nothing, nothing can, nothing can come in comparison with sunshine. I don't know how much it costs to light the streets of London. I should think it'd be just a fortune every night, wouldn't you? But then you think of it. What the sun does when it floods the whole earth every day. Try to work that out in so many terms or whatever it is. Well, it'd drive you crazy, wouldn't it? That's what God's doing like that. Giving it here for nothing. He says, that's the picture of my glory. No hole or corner about it, but absolutely flooding and full and reviving and vivifying. Why, the light of the sun is the source of all our energy. The little humble plant takes it and transforms it into food for us, but it's all second-hand sunshine. And when that day comes, it won't even be second-hand. It'll be just directly contact with the living God. Now it says, in verse 2, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee. Now stop for a minute. There is a system of teaching which says that as we gradually come together and have church meetings, gospel campaigns, gradually, gradually, the people of the earth will become more and more Christianized until at last, all at last, I suppose it will run into light years, millions of years to come, the whole earth will at last be so evangelized that the glory of God will be here. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? But the coming of the Lord will take place when darkness is upon the earth. The scripture puts the question, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith in the earth? And you know the implied answer is no. If he's got to wait until we're all ready for him, friends, we'll never come at all. He comes when the world is under the dominion of the anti-Christian beast, when the time of trouble be such a character that it never has been before and never to be repeated, then the Lord comes, not waiting for anybody to be converted. He'll convert them then in a sense that no other method of conversion can compare. So it says, For behold, a darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. And the Lord shall arise upon them and his glory shall be seen upon them. Arise, shine. He shall arise, and his glory shall be seen. Well, that's all. It's not their glory, apart from him. They are reflectors. But he is there in order to reflect it. And you see, you're beginning to get the whole pattern once more, right back in the beginning. What was the first move of God, so far as the earth as we understand it today was? Let there be light. And there was light. And then the apostle picks that up and says, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we're anticipating that now. And then the real thing will come when the glory of the Lord will be here. And it will take the place of sun, moon, star and all other agents that God has used in, in between. As well as being the spiritual light of which there are all patterns and shadows. As we sung in our hymn, How shall we sing thy glory, Lord? What can we use? We can only use little symbols that are more darkness than light half the time. Then it says in verse 3, The effect upon the Gentile world, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light. 
It's good thing for us to remember that God has not made the children of Israel a kingdom of priests and not chosen them to be a distinctive nation all for their own benefit. It's that through them all families of the earth are ultimately to be blessed. A light to lighten the Gentiles as well as the glory of my people Israel. So Israel will never fall into the same mistake that they made earlier that thinking that they were the chosen nation, they hugged their blessings to themselves and they called the outside Gentiles dogs and they had no idea of evangelizing them. They could come and become proselytes, but the idea never entered their head that they were the ones through whom the light and the truth was to radiate to the ends of the earth. That is to be. And so we have here, the Gentile shall come to thy light. And we find uh, that um, in the prophet Zechariah that that's going to be literally true. If you'll read the last chapter of the prophet Zechariah, you're told that when the children of Israel are there, established once more like this, that three times a year there shall be those go up from the nations of the earth to represent them at Jerusalem to keep the feasts of the Lord. And if you say, oh, that's only to be spiritualized, then the Lord says any nation who refuses to go up any nation who refuses to go up shall be punished by the withholding of rain. But the only, the only land that that wouldn't be a punishment would be Egypt, because they depend upon the Nile instead. They have a special plague all to themselves. So you can't spiritualize it away. So here we have then Israel with light, the glory of the Lord there, and Gentiles seeking it. Kings shall come to the brightness of thy rising. And then it tells you, as you notice, in, um, or we go on, lift up thine eyes round about and see, all they gather themselves together. They come to thee, thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Thy sons shall come from far. It tells you again the same thing later on. And they're going to be brought by the Gentiles to this land. It's anticipated already by the fact that in our own day, Israel have gone back to Palestine with great disturbance, great problems, uh, but you do know that when they speak of themselves and when it's mentioned in the newspaper, they speak of themselves not as Israel, but as Israeli, with an eye on the end. Now that is an unfinished statement, because they're really saying, by, by putting the eye on the end, we are now the nation of Israel. That's a possessive case, with the eye on the end. They're claiming nationality. They're there a nation. They're still in the dark with regard to the Lord, but they're beginning to, they're beginning to emphasize the fact that without the messianic teaching of Old Testament prophecy, they haven't got some, something to link them together and make them one. They're already discussing that. One day they're going to look upon him whom they pierced, and a nation shall be born in a day. And they may have to go through some time of trouble yet before that dawns, but it's coming, friends. It's coming very near. It may be the darkness before the dawn in which we are actually living. And these sons, uh, the, it says further down in the same verse 5, the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee, and the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles. There's a certain emphasis upon the uh, idea, uh, not only of wealth, uh, but of other things. Look at that now a bit further on to Zechariah chapter 
14, I think it is. hope so. Zechariah 14, verse 14. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. You see, it's emphasised it on quite a number of places. And not only so, but... Uh, the force of the Gentiles, which may be considered also uh, with regard to their military force, is neg- negative by a verse It says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. That's already been said. So now we get the, the, the weapons that may be forged against them by the outside world are going to be nullified, and the outside world are going to contribute abundantly to the building up of this people with this in view. And then we read further, um, at the end of verse 7, they shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. And let's for a moment run through this chapter and see in the compass of these few verses how this word glory keeps pace with the story. Oh, that's a bit of rhyme, isn't it? I'll better finish that later on. I didn't realise how I was approaching Shakespeare and all these others. Now, look at verse verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Verse 2, at the end, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And then in verse 7, and I will glorify the house of my glory. And then at the end of verse 9, because he hath glorified thee. And then, I think it is right toward the end, um, 21. Thy people shall also be all, shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So you see the glory is a living, active, vivifying thing. Not merely a bit of splendor. It's the real thing. Or if we only could anticipate the life that's to come, we'd see that all the things in which we take pleasure, all the activities we think are so great, all the scientific discoveries, all the display of physical skill, all the things we do are all such poor, puny little things done in the half-dark as to what it will be when in fullness of life, as Paul puts it, life that is life indeed should be lived not in the strength of the sunshine which is so wonderful, but in the strength of the glory of the Lord of which the sun is a poor picture. No wonder the Apostle said, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hated the art of man, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. He's only indicated it by his spirit as far as it's possible for us to understand. But isn't it good to know we've got an unspeakable blessing awaiting us and this people have it then? It's better further on. And so we come back to this chapter once more to see a few more things. It says, um, verse 9, Surely the isles shall wait for, for me, and the ships of Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is to do with the coastline of the Mediterranean and may reach as far as Spain, we're not quite sure, uh, by the various references. Uh, but there's more than one reference to the ships belonging to this people who shall be instrumental in bringing the children of Israel back to their land. And some, of course, they had a feeling that because Cyprus and those parts of the world were under the dominion of this country, that 
Cyprus was included and the ships that would belong to Britain would have the honour of taking back Israel's son. Well, it may still be in other ways, but it's all that part of the world where this shipping is going to be used by the Lord to carry his people back. To bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them. You know, when, pe- when the people of Israel have been expelled and, and have to leave their country, the one thing they are not allowed to take with them is their silver and their gold. The nations of the earth have watched over that. But this time, it's going to be just like Egypt. They're going to compel them to take it with them. Unto the name of the, uh, unto the, name of the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. We've got other passages where they're going to be their plowmen. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. And here we have the same emphasize. Everything thing emphasized. It says in verse 10, For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favour have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be opened continually. Now this is a thing which is spoken of also of the heavenly Jerusalem. The gates are there to be opened day and night, never to be closed, and the nations and the kings are going to walk in the light of the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, the earthly Jerusalem is going to be a little reflection of the heavenly one. There's going to be no uh, great division except one will be greater and more wonderful than the one on earth. Therefore thy gates shall be opened continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. Now comes a word of warning. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, these nations shall be utterly wasted. So there's a word of warning for those who may rebel against this. And it says at the end of verse 13, I will make the place of my feet glorious. Just exactly what that means, may you have to wait until that day. But apart from the fact that our Saviour as an infant was taken by his parents to Egypt, his feet walked the streets and the lanes and the seashore of a little strip of land called Palestine and never went outside. And one day he stood upon the Mount of Olives, the last place on earth that his feet rested on. And while he spoke to his people and raised his hands in blessing, he was received up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they stood gazing up into heaven, wondering what it could mean, two angels stood there and said to them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, whom we have seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner. Well, surely, we're ready then for the prophecy of Zechariah to tell us that at that day, his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is just outside the walls of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is growing bigger and will include the whole lot of it before he comes. The temple area is going to be a vaster, bigger area than the small temple area that's inside Jerusalem. If you study the book of Ezekiel, you'll find that instead of having to argue the point as to whether they're going to get the site of the temple back from the uh, Arab world, they've got another site altogether outside what we call the walls that will be developed as the great temple area in that day. This feature stand in that day. 
on the Mount of Olives. He will make the place of his feet glorious. Aren't we glad to know that is so? And then, I think in chapter 66, verse 1, there's a reference that we might associate with that. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build me? And where is the place of my rest? The footstool, of course, includes the idea. So he's speaking again about this place that is to be built. Although he is Lord of heaven as well as earth. And then again, further down, just as we have um, the, the coming of the sons, we get it again in verse 14, the sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. Thy sons are going to be brought and their sons are going to come bending unto thee. And you remember in the book of the Revelation and other places, it says that I will bring them, look at Revelation chapter 3, just by way of one passage, to see what's going to take place to reverse some of the attitude of the nations to this ancient people. Revelation 3, verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. God is going to see to it that this despised people that have been dealt with because of their own sins and obtuseness and disobedience, nevertheless, you remember that although he said he would punish them by the hardship that the king of Babylon would force upon them, he said, he doesn't think he's doing my, he's serving himself and I'll have to deal with him later on because he's exceeded anything I ever said. So at last it's going to be rectified. They shall come and bow before thee and recognize that thou, as I have loved you. And then it goes on to say, this is, this is, they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. Again, you see, it's not possible for us to say that this is a, an enlightenment of the world a long time before Christ comes, because this is to be an eternal excellency and a joy of many generations. It's not going to be done away with. And so we go on and see the way in which this um, is emphasized. Look at verse 7. For brass, I will bring gold. For iron, I will bring silver. You go back to the days of Solomon, and you remember it says silver was counted as nothing in his day. It makes you think of Gilbert and Solomon, doesn't it? When everybody walks in cloth of gold, up goes the price of shoddy. But here we have the other way around. Silver was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. And yet, Yet there's a very strange statement made in the days of Solomon. Does anybody here know, without turning to the book, what the revenue of Solomon was in one year? 666 talents. You notice it? So that wasn't the real thing. There'll be no 666 stamped on God's day when he gives this. There's only a poor little anticipation. Solomon in all his glory couldn't anticipate except like a faint shadow this day of glory that's coming. And I the Lord am thy saviour and thy redeemer 
the mighty one of Jacob. For brass I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for wood, brass, and stones, iron. I will also make thy officers peace, and thine executors righteousness. And thy walls salvation, verse 18, and thy gates praise. You see, everything is emphasized in this one way of outshining the grace of God that's come upon this people. Verse 19, thy sun shall be no more the light of to, uh, by day. See, he's going back on this as you see by the structure. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. Why? But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light. And then, in one statement, it gathers up that which is extended in the book of the Revelation. The days of thy mourning shall be ended. The days of thy mourning shall be ended. Well, you know, it says it, no more sorrow, no more sighing, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more curse. The days of thy mourning shall be ended. Isn't that wonderful to know that's coming, friends? There's plenty of mourning still in this world, isn't there? One after the other. But a day God is going to take his pen and write across it no more. And that will day be when this light is shining and the glory is here and the restoration has come and the earth is being blessed and Israel will be a kingdom of priests and there were the nations of the earth learning the law of God through this people and the heavenly Jerusalem ministering over the whole lot and the church of the one body at the right hand far above all. Heaven and heavenly Jerusalem and earth all linked together with the glory of the Lord at his fullness. It's worth looking at a chapter like this, isn't it? Just to get a little thrill of it. Even though we haven't been able to say much about it. Well, what's the good of trying to talk? Perhaps it's best to say, have a look. And say very little. Just sit and meditate and think of what this means. What a change and what a contrast between the best we know in this world and this which is yet to come. Thy people also shall be all righteous. Well, that's a state of affairs that's never been known yet, is it? We've been half righteous or hoping to be, and but all thy people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. Again, you see, here is something lasting. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, both sides, the work and the planting, building and planting, that I may be glorified. And then that little people are going to have this position. And a little one shall become a thousand. One of the statements made to Abraham is that if it were possible for Abraham to count the dust of the earth or the sand of the sea or the stars of the sky, well, the astronomer is having a good go at it, but he's still telling you there are so many millions he hasn't checked up yet. All right. But you ever try counting the sand of the sea, sure. You know, it's, a, it's an utter impossibility. So he said to Abraham, so shall thy seed be. Now Israel have never been a, a great number of people. They lived in a small land and they've never been like millions like you get China or India. Do you know what's going to happen, friends? As far as I see the story, the nations are going to decimate themselves so far that the prophet Zechariah says, the nations of those who are left 
Think of that. After the terrible conflict that takes place, you see what the nations are doing. They're building up the weapons for their own destruction. And the nations that are left when it's all over shall guard the Jerusalem. But Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the earth with fruit. And Abraham's seed are going to be so numberless that there'll be no possibility of taking a census. Now either God means what he says when he says, can you, ma- can you number the sand? Can you number the stars? But if he does, that's going to be a condition that's never been in this earth before. Whether rule Britannia and all the other elements will be glad to know that the best part of the earth will be populated by the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I don't know. But it looks as though that people who started so small and made such a failure at the beginning and nevertheless they are going to be God's seed in the earth and the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in and through them. Well now, that only makes our calling more wonderful. That in this present day, only a small remnant of the children of Israel have had their eyes open to see the high and holy and wonderful calling of the church of the one body. But here we are, poor outside Gentiles without count, without covenants, without all these promises, without these fathers, just aliens and strangers. We've got a calling that Israel will never know. So don't be envious if Israel are going to have a good place in the earth because there's plenty of room in the glory for those who are members of the body of Christ and those who will have their place in the heavenly Jerusalem. But God is going to be glorified from the very highest heavens where Christ sits at his right hand to the ends of the earth they shall see the salvation of the Lord. Well now you must pick up these chapters and make them your own because next week when we meet together I want to bring the studies of the prophet Isaiah to a close. So I've got to deal with the last uh, about six chapters and do the best I can to focus attention upon outstanding features. But in the matter of making these tape recordings it's not possible for us to go on without limits, you see. I must remember these limitations and act accordingly. But I trust that our study as we've looked at this passage and others will help us to understand some of the purpose of God with regard to his ancient people, as well as rejoice in all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, which is our hope and our very precious calling.